We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The Culture and Anarchy Podcast. And what is the mechanic? Liberty. The government Water. becomes so Water. overbearing, there so is overbearing. no such thing. Welcome to the Culture and Anarchy Podcast. I appreciate all the support for the show that I have received throughout the past year. I am very pleased to announce the release of my new book on the subject of language, theology, and grammar, The God Function, Deus Ex Grammatica, the world's first argument for grammar. For those who have weathered the trials and puzzles of religion and who emerged on the other side wondering what in the devil that whole ordeal was about, which occupied your youth and your inmost private thoughts, the God Function provides a probing philosophical and epistemological critique of exactly what it is that drives humankind towards religion, theology, and the rational justification for the existence of God. Not quite a work of atheism, agnosticism, nor yet deism. The God Function presupposes there is a fourth position, that of the grammarian. The argument from grammar explores the denotation of the omnipotent and omniscient God that is justified by reason and dismissed by empiricism in the fields of philosophy and religion. The God function draws upon a philosophical tradition rooted in the thought of Protagoras, the medieval grammarians, John Wycliffe, Immanuel Kant, Arthur Schopenhauer, and Friedrich Hayek. While many atheists have spilled barrels of ink in refuting the existence of God, I turn this critique of theism back upon the atheists in order to show how a proper understanding of grammatical theory can also answer the most successful arguments against the God thesis. God, whether we believe it or not, arrives out of grammar. Please stop by lulu.com or Amazon in order to pick up a copy of the God function. Shoppers at Lulu will receive up to 30% off their purchase. As a reminder, follow me on Twitter by my handle, at Anarchy underscore Culture. And if you'd like to make a small contribution to our show, please visit www.culture-anarchy.com slash donate.html. Also, if you can stop by our page on iTunes, please leave a great rating for the show to help move our podcast up the ranks. The Culture and Anarchy Podcast presents Liberty or Equality The Intergenerational Dialogue of Western Civilization 
featuring the essays of Ralph Waldo Emerson, Ernest Renan, William Graham Sumner, and Lord Acton. Reinterpreted in the light of Frazier J. Hayek's theory of catalactics. Diagnosing Romantic Nationalism Fichte's Ideal Conception of the Universal German Identity The polarized concepts of fear and hope predominate in the addresses of Fichte. Fear of change, fear of oppression, fear of trading out the present with a worse state of affairs, as well as hope for change and even hope for being spared the trial of civilization and society. That is, to be spared the responsibility of the consequences for a life lived in self-absorption by becoming a super-self, the German who channels rather than transforms a culture. However, what Fichte identified as a problem central to human existence, or as the source of individual discontent, may have been true even though his collectivist antidotes to those metaphysical and psychological quandaries were sorely mistaken. Fear and hope are central to human existence. Fear drives us to a sense of personal responsibility, hope to morality, and both drive meaning. Without fear of loss, no individual could ever stand to gain something. And without hope for something better, the individual could never aim at something higher than fear and a despairing feeling of existential futility, like that projected by Child Harold. The twin concepts of fear and hope regularly appear throughout the moral thought of Western civilization, two concepts that are, in fact, entirely ingrained in the Judeo-Christian traditions as the very substance of their ideals and theologies. There are many reactions to fear and hope, many ways of coping with these primal emotions. In microeconomic theory, it is uneasiness, not quite fear, but perhaps the root of fear where uneasiness does not have adequate knowledge to hope for a long-run and short-run success in solving problems in a world of ceaseless change. That is, it is uneasiness which prompts humankind into action. And in action, there is always hope for the accomplishment of a future good. And so long as man abides on this earth, there will always be this fundamental duality in man. The drive towards the group is a deeply biological and psychological protection measure for the individual. There is, evolutionarily speaking, some remnant of this drive in most of our instincts. We learned at an early stage of hunting and gathering that it is better to hunt the predator in the group than to fear its later arrival and to then disperse into an ethic of every man for himself. We required allies and friends, and we needed more than the power of our own short-sighted eyes. We needed more knowledge than we could obtain by subjective perception. We needed interpersonal exchange, linguistically and materially. But as the threats from the environment, and especially predators, subsided, the new threat came from the collective drive towards group identity. Rival civilizations, cultures, villages, speakers of a language, had to contend with one another, and the group became a protection from other human groups as mankind trekked into new territories, where other groups had already laid down the roots of property and power dynamics within the tribe, herd, and state. 
Only those who could suppress violence could survive the trials of evolution to create civilization. And those civilizations who tried to engineer systems alien to human action, idealisms like socialism, fascism, nationalism, and tribalism, those civilizations clashed, blended, served, enslaved, slaved away in chains, and survived to the present. Not all civilizations survived. Bad calculations in the collective affected the survival of entire races of men. Where discussions of fear and hope begin to touch collective ideals or collectives as such, groups, classes, and statistical abstractions, fear is certainly an effective rhetorical tool utilized to inspire mass actions of the crowd. The concept of liberty as the rational element of anarchy and self-determination inspires fear in many people. In liberty lies the risk of loss, the risk of alienation, and the risk of annihilation. But in liberty, there is always hope for reward. Those who lack self-confidence and are unwilling to work in order to give some portion of their profits in exchange for another's goodwill, that individual lacks an understanding of human nature. She fears liberty for a very good reason. Liberty, the proscription of coercion and aggression by other acting men against person and property, dispels once and forever the bugbear of utopian equality in material being and material resources. Violence is our subjective understanding that power, be it the power that is expressed through deceit, brawn, or force of numbers, is our last and final means of self-propagation when civil society breaks down and social trust declines. And when a collective drive towards power of violence, rather than power of negotiation, demarcates a change away from win-win negotiations, the neurotics, the sociopaths, the resentful, the malingerers, they take refuge in the belief that an abstract class is owed something, that all negotiations are win-lose, and that it is far better to be a winner than a loser so long as life continues. However, violence we also know to be a destructive force that must be suppressed if civilization is to ever proceed beyond its usual booms and busts. And to this date in human history, humankind's experiment with the market, that is, experiments with refraining from aggression against persons and property, has unleashed the most happiness and the prescription of misery than any other force in the world. And predatory political violence, taxation, aggression, coercion, war, and democratic mobocracy has managed to obtain more resources for evil than ever before in history. Those who blanch at the thought of dispersed liberty find comfort in the constancy of collective violence, for they feel that it is the ultimate reign by which to domesticate the high ideals and aims of the wild individual men. At Milos, as we saw in the last installment of this series, where two world powers squared off over resources and spurned win-win negotiations in favor of irrationalist power politics and social distrust through conquest and spoliation. There was no rational compromise to be bridged between individuals of disparate and extended communities. It is catalaxy, or giving this to procure that through 
voluntary exchange, thus turning potential foes into friends, that secures peace and prosperity. Only by risking property and time, turning over a surplus in exchange for another's goodwill, which is signified on his part by his reciprocal act of turning over his surplus, only there can trust overcome our instinctual drive for self-preservation out of feral violence, theft, and aggression. It was in the earlier revolt of Mytilene, wherein the lesbians sought aid from the Spartans, that the truth of power politics was best parsed. The only sure basis of an alliance is for each party to be equally afraid of the other. He who would like to encroach is then deterred by the reflection that he will not have odds in his favor. Only by mutual fear, a healthy respect for might, would an equal in power see their way to empire more clearly by specious language and by the paths of policy than by those of force. Equality, which may have theoretical application in mathematics or a political theory, as in the concept of isonomy, where all individuals are treated by the same laws without empirical preference. Equality does not really have any empirical properties. To speak of equality in power, equality in representation, equality in ideals, equality of results, is to speak of something with no conceivable margin in actual time and space. The timelessness and placelessness of a consistent definition of equality is what verifies the underlying negativity of the concept. Equality is the absence of something, and not its presence. Equality adds nothing to an object, or even to a subject. Equality is neutrality, and in human affairs, equality is the neutrality of violence. Equality is specifically what will not be taken from an object. It's race, genes, culture, religion, and so on, to be turned back against that subject as a weapon. Hence, it was pronounced at Milos that right, as the world goes, is only in question between equals in power, while the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must. And in the face of this kind of aggression and coercion, one has no recourse but to comfort one's resolve with hope in something better than win-lose negotiations, which promise spoliation and death, or else to resolve oneself to subjection and slavery. Milos held out hope for something better than subjection. It resisted the might of Athens, and those rebels within the walls who betrayed the city by means of internal treachery, they hoped to be spared retribution for their resistance. So far as we know, None of the men were spared, and only the women and children lived beyond the purge to become slaves to the conquering host. Today, the greatest debate over power and responsibility now exists, as it ever did, in the opposing economic and political spheres. Private property drives prosperity in an economy, and state power driven by collective covetousness for that property in its alternative uses, secured by violence and expropriation by taxes, threatens the long-run sustainability of a property-driven society. Without secure land titles, without secure property contracts, 
without the word, the word as a man's bond, there can be no social trust, no exchange, no catalaxy, no turning potential foes into friends. At the root of social trust is not the elimination of property, as argued by the socialists, or equality of power, wherein all have equal claims to all goods, an unthinkable, undefinable, empirical equality, or even the elimination of fear. At the root of social trust is risk. The risk that we all take in giving up a portion of one's hard work in order to exchange it for a future favor, for goodwill, for other goods and services in return. We do not always know with surety that what is returned in exchange will bear out to be as valuable as what is given up, but we know that the risk is two-sided, always, even if the risk cannot be deemed equal. There can never be a one-way exchange, that is, taxing the 1% to fund utopian paradises in the clouds, where one gives up something with no expectation of a return that will yield the healthy base of social trust between participants in civilization. Instead, we see only the bare expression of power, greed for the unearned, and the politics of resentment and covetousness. Mankind must find his equilibrium. He must find the equilibrium in overcoming lack, fear, and want by means of exchange and in subsuming an equilibrium with his fellow man and his environment, he stands to gain more of his hopes than otherwise in a world ruled by fear alone. Of the tension between fear and hope, the Stoic philosopher Seneca wrote that part of the solution to overcoming the base motivations of human psychology lay in coming to an acceptance of the gains returned by human industry. Riches do not betoken excess nor does poverty betoken virtue. By finding the point of equilibrium, the win-win in life, as the expression of success and living in harmony with one's environment and peers, one can overcome the baser motivations of covetousness and guilt, which destroy the individual psyche, morality, and virtue. He writes in his fifth letter to Lucilius, On the Philosopher's Mean I commend you and rejoice in the fact that you are persistent in your studies, and that, putting all else aside, you make it each day your endeavor to become a better man. I do not merely exhort you to keep at it. I actually beg you to do so. I warn you, however, not to act after the fashion of those who desire to be conspicuous, rather than to improve, by doing things which will rouse comment as regards your dress, or general way of living. Repellent attire, unkempt hair, slovenly beard, open scorn of silver dishes, a couch on the bare earth, and any other perverted forms of self-display are to be avoided. The mere name of philosophy, however quietly pursued, is an object of sufficient scorn. And what would happen if we should begin to separate ourselves from the customs of our fellow men? Inwardly, we ought to be different in all respects, but our exterior should conform to society. Do not wear too fine, nor yet too frowsy a toga. One needs no silver plate, encrusted and embossed in solid gold, but we should not believe the lack of silver and gold to be proof of the simple life. Let us try to maintain a higher standard of life than that of the multitude. 
but not a contrary standard. Otherwise, we shall frighten away and repel the very persons whom we are trying to improve. We also bring it about that they are unwilling to imitate us in anything, because they are afraid lest they might be compelled to imitate us in everything. The first thing which philosophy undertakes to give is fellow feeling with all men. In other words, sympathy and sociability. We part company with our promise if we are unlike other men. We must see to it that the means by which we wish to draw admiration be not absurd and odious. Our motto, as you know, is live according to nature. But it is quite contrary to nature to torture the body, to hate unlabored elegance, to be dirty on purpose, to eat food that is not only plain, but disgusting and forbidding. Just as it is a sign of luxury to seek out dainties, so it is madness to avoid that which is customary and can be purchased at no great price. Philosophy calls for plain living, but not for penance. It would perfectly well be plain and neat at the same time. This is the mean of which I approve. Our life should observe a happy medium between the ways of a sage and the ways of the world at large. All men should admire it, but they should understand it also. Well then, shall we act like other men? Shall there be no distinction between ourselves and the world? Well, yes, a very great one. Let men find that we are unlike the common herd if they look closely. If they visit us at home, they should admire us rather than our household appointments. He is a great man who uses earthenware dishes as if they were silver. But he is equally great who uses silver as if it were earthenware. It is the sign of an unstable mind not to be able to endure riches. But I wish to share with you today's prophet also. I find in the writings of our Hecato that the limiting of desires helps also to cure fears. Cease to hope, he says, and you will cease to fear. But how, you will reply, can things so different go side by side? In this way, my dear Lucilius, though they do seem at variance, yet they are really united. Just as the same chain fastens the prisoner and the soldier who guards him, so hope and fear, dissimilar as they are, keep step together. Fear follows hope. I am not surprised that they proceed in this way. Each alike belongs to a mind that is in suspense a mind that is fretted by looking forward to the future. But the chief cause of both of these ills is that we do not adapt ourselves to the present, but send our thoughts a long way ahead. And so foresight, the noblest blessing of the human race, becomes perverted. Beasts avoid the dangers which they see, and when they have escaped them, are free from care. But we men torment ourselves over that which is to come as well as over that which is past. Many of our blessings bring bane to us, for memory recalls the tortures of fear, while foresight anticipates them. The present alone can make no man wretched. Fichte recommends a different path in his addresses. He recommends a path of racial and cultural exclusions, 
for the formation of a new collective identity that would subsume the transient things of man into an eternal and constructed identity of the nation. He would throw the particulars of a German culture into a timeless and placeless margin where no individual German might afterward challenge what it meant to be a German. This is somewhat of an odd concept, but was entirely suited to his unadulterated idealism. For Fichte, there was no object. There was only subject. And the object only ever existed within the subjective intentions of man. To a certain extent, this is true. But in Fichte's world, there was no objective reality. And thus, everything was to have a subjective use without objective constraints imposed upon reason from without. He was, indeed, a dangerous idealist. He disregarded economic laws and believed that a nation could close itself off from the world as a closed commercial state an autarkic agency of a seamless and unindifferentiated people, and not a nation of sovereign individuals. And this closed commercial state would administer all production, construction, education, and consumption without any outside aid. He saw society, the voluntary interrelationships of men, as pollution. He saw trade as weakness. He believed Cadillacs he corrupted mankind by diluting his loyalties to kin, race, and nation. Only in the self-contained, self-defining, self-determined nation, as defined by Fichte, of course, and only then in the German language alone, could a man obtain the empirical content required to act upon the world stage the eternal drama of supersensuous being. His was not a theory of stoic equilibrium. It was a theory of strictly positive law, intense taxation, arbitrary sway, the restriction of liberty, and identity politics. Selection from the 13th Address Fichte's Thoughts on World Trade just as foreign to the German is the freedom of the seas, which is so frequently preached in our days, whether what is intended to be real freedom or merely the power to exclude everyone else from it. Throughout the course of the centuries, while all the other nations were in rivalry, the Germans showed little desire to participate in this freedom to any great extent, and he will never do so. Moreover, he is not in need of it. The abundant supplies of his own land, together with his own diligence, afford him all that is needed in the life of a civilized man. Nor does he lack skill in the art of making his resources serve that purpose. As for acquiring the only true advantage that world trade brings in its train, namely, the increase in scientific knowledge of the earth and its inhabitants, his own scientific spirit will not let him lack a means of exchange. Oh, if only this kindly fortune had preserved the German from indirect participation in the booty of other worlds, as it preserved him from direct participation. If only we had not been led by our credulity, and by the craving for a life as fine and as distinguished as that of other peoples, to make necessaries of the wares produced in foreign parts which we could do without. If only we had made conditions tolerable for our free fellow citizens." In regard to the wares we can less easily do without, 
instead of wishing to draw profit from the sweat and blood of a poor slave across the seas. Then, at any rate, we should not ourselves have furnished the pretext for our present fate. War could not have been waged against us as purchasers, nor would we have been ruined because we are a marketplace. Almost ten years ago, before anyone could foresee what has since happened, the Germans were advised to make themselves independent of world trade and to turn themselves into a closed commercial state. This proposal ran counter to our habits, and especially to our idolatrous veneration of coined metals. It was passionately attacked and thrust aside. Since then we have been learning, in dishonor and under the compulsion of a foreign power, to do without those things, and far more than those things, which we then protested we could not do without, though we might have done so then, in freedom, and with the greatest honor to ourselves. Oh, that we might seize this opportunity, since enjoyment at least is not corrupting us, to correct our ideas once for all. Oh, that we might at last see that all those swindling theories about world trade and manufacturing for the world market, though they suit the foreigner and form part of the weapons with which he has always made war on us, have no application to the Germans, and that, next to the unity of the Germans among themselves, their internal autonomy and commercial independence form the second means for their salvation, and through them, for the salvation of Europe. Fichte presaged the course of political idealism, the romanticization of violence, which was to define itself as the totalitarian solution to the rival totalitarian universalisms of the French Revolution, and later, the international Marxian intellectuals, the twin totalitarianisms that ruled the next two centuries. In Fichte's vision, liberty had to be constrained by class distinctions, and the liberty of the individual, as the specimen of Homo sapiens, became constrained by various arbitrary subgroups, within the species of humankind. It is not that humankind was ever free from various arbitrary empirical distinctions. It is that the ideal of human liberty, as the abstention from coercion and aggression against other acting men, now had to compete with counter-revolutionary denotations of liberty from the positivist, socialist, postmodernist, racialists, and nationalists who sought to unseat private property and to utilize the sum product of a prior age's suppression of violence through violence, and then to turn that property against the market forces that create civilization. As we approach the 17th year of the war in the Middle East, where Trump, as I expected, is attempting to close the war with massive death and destruction of the Iraqi, Afghani, Yemeni populace, we can easily spot the victims of those bombings, shellings, and the leveling of entire cities. There are regions of the Middle East, Fallujah, Mosul, Raqqa, that will be virtually uninhabitable for generations. And of the scattered generations broken by war, which we fomented and cannot now repair, there will remain a great animus that cannot be cured by any imposition of power. What the Athenians, Melians, and Mytilenians discovered about power, slavery, and servitude remain true, as the reality under which our high ideals of democracy and regime change 
float as self-flattering visions of, of what has so far been accomplished in the world. Generations of Iraqis, Afghanis, and Yemenis shelled into oblivion and psychological disrepair, a veritable generation of PTSD victims of war, will try to discover its own way through the fears and hopes of Amelian civilization, trying vainly to protest its right to exist beneath the barrage of bombs and armaments we have dropped upon their heads and placed into the hands of their would-be masters. The more subtle casualty of the war is the domestic spirit of pride that one could take in one's countrymen, without necessarily attributing it to the nation. The spirit of comity, community, and trust. To fund this war, we have destroyed more private property without visible ruins here at home than in any other war thus far. The national security state has eroded our privacy. The state has enshrined laws with the potential to suspend habeas corpus, the NDAA. The casualties can be measured by alienation. And if one thinks that the rise of the regressive left and the progressive right, the alt-right, are inexplicable events, unforeseeable, one need look no further than the effects of the Iraq war malaise upon the political psychology in order to explain the manifestation of these socialistic movements. The lost generation, in casting its ship off from its homeland and its ancestral halls, is now rebounding between rival welfare and warfare statisms, is now fighting for control of an apparatus of violence. Free trade, private property, and individual self-reliance are again, as always, the targets of their barbs, and a machine with such power, such that it could level nations at the push of a button, is exerting a bigger draw upon the share-the-wealth malingerers and the god-king-and-fatherland warmongerers. This state machine, too large to manage, cannot be won by a single ideology at present, and the alienated generation will not end with the spirit of youth in the alt-right and the alt-left. The nations which they wish to build, to construct from scratch as if the baser instincts and proclivities of man could be eradicated by appointing the correct ministers of state, will not foster social trust. And so, bad policy, bad intentions, and bad people will grant these fictions a momentum that is perhaps beyond sober-minded correction. To obtain that correction... Americans would first have to turn inward and risk everything so far obtained by violence by giving it all up for the risks promised by liberty. It is a trade worth executing, but it is a trade that must be undertaken freely. It will never be gotten by political means. It can only be obtained by the renunciation of violence against individuals, privacy, and property. The secession and not the accession of power.
Selections from the Eighth Address. What is a people in the higher meaning of the word? And what is love of fatherland? The natural impulse of man, which should be abandoned only in case of real necessity, is to find heaven on this earth, and to endow his daily work on earth with permanence and eternity, to plant and to cultivate the eternal in the temporal, not merely in an incomprehensible fashion or in a connection with the eternal that seems to mortal eye an impenetrable gulf, but in a fashion visible to the mortal eye itself. Let me begin with an example that everyone will understand. What man of noble mind is there who does not earnestly wish to relive his own life in a new and better way in his children and his children's children, and to continue to live on this earth, ennobled and perfected in their lives, long after he is dead? Does he not wish to snatch from the jaws of death the spirit, the mind, and the moral sense by virtue of which, perchance, he was in the days of his life a terror to wrongdoing and corruption, and by which he supported righteousness, aroused men from indolence, and lifted them out of their depression? Does he not wish to deposit these qualities as his best legacy to posterity in the souls of those he leaves behind, so that they too, in their turn, may some day hand them on again, increased and made more bountiful? What man of noble mind is there who does not want to scatter, by action or thought, a grain of seed for the unending progress and perfection of his race, to fling something new and unprecedented into time, that it may remain there and become the inexhaustible source of new creations? Does he not wish to pay for his place on this earth and the short span of time allotted to him with something that, even here below, will endure forever, so that he, the individual, although unnamed in history, for the thirst for posthumous fame is contemptible vanity, may yet in his own consciousness and his faith leave behind him unmistakable memories that he, too, was a dweller on the earth. What man of noble mind is there, I said, who does not want this? But only according to the needs of noble-minded men is the world to be regarded and arranged, as they are, so all men ought to be, and for their sake alone does a world exist. They are its kernel, and those of other mind exist only for their sake being themselves only a part of the transitory world so long as they are of that mind. Such men must conform to the wishes of the noble-minded until they have become like them. Now, what is it that could warrant this challenge and this faith of the noble-minded man in the permanence and eternity of his work? Obviously, nothing but an order of things which he can acknowledge as in itself eternal and capable of taking up into itself that which is eternal. Such an order of things, however, is the special nature of human environment, which, although indeed it is not to be comprehended in any conception, nevertheless truly exists, and from which he himself, with all his thoughts and deeds, and with his belief in their eternity, has proceeded. The people, from which he is descended and among which he was educated and grew up to be what he now is. For though it is true beyond dispute that his work, if he rightly claims it to be eternal, is in no wise the mere result of the spiritual law of nature of his nation, or absolutely the same thing as this result, but on the contrary is something more than that, and in so far streams forth directly from original and divine life, 
It is nevertheless equally true that this something more, immediately on its first embodiment in a visible form, submitted itself to that special spiritual law of nature and found sensuous expression for itself only according to that law. So long as this people exists, every further revelation of the divine will appear to take shape in that people in accordance with the same natural law. But this law itself is further determined by the fact that this man existed and worked as he did, and his influence has become a permanent part of this law. Hence, everything that follows will be bound to submit itself to and connect itself with that law. So he is sure that the improvement achieved by him remains in his people, so long as the people itself remains and that it becomes a permanent determining factor in the evolution of his people. This, then, is a people in the higher meaning of the word, when viewed from the standpoint of a spiritual world. The totality of men continuing to live in society with each other and continually creating themselves naturally and spiritually out of themselves. A totality that arises together out of the divine under certain special law of divine development. It is the subjection in common to this special law that unites this mass in the eternal world, and therefore in the temporal also, to a natural totality permeated by itself. The significance of this law itself can indeed be comprehended as a whole, as we have comprehended it by the instance of the Germans as an original people. It can even be better understood in many of its further provisions by considering the manifestations of such a people but it can never be completely grasped by the mind of anyone, for everyone continually remains under its influence unknown to himself, although, in general, it can clearly be seen that such a law exists. This law is a something more of the world of images that coalesces absolutely in the phenomenal world with the something more of the world of originality that cannot be imaged. Hence, in the phenomenal world, neither can be separated again from the other. That law determines entirely and completes what has been called the national character of a people, that law of development of the original and divine. From this it is clear that men who, as is the case with what we have described as the foreign spirit, do not believe at all in something original, nor in its continuous development, but only in an eternal recurrence of apparent life and who, by their belief, become what they believe, are in the higher sense not a people at all, as they, in fact, properly speaking, do not exist. They are just as little capable of having a national character. The noble-minded man's belief in the eternal continuance of his influence, even on this earth, is thus founded on the hope of the eternal continuance of the people from which he has developed, and on the characteristic of that people is indicated in the hidden law of which we have spoken, without admixture of, or corruption by, any alien element which does not belong to the totality of the functions of that law. This characteristic is the eternal thing to which he entrusts the eternity of himself, and of his continuing influence, the eternal order of things in which he places his portion of eternity. He must will its continuance, for it alone is to him the means by which the short span of his life here below is extended into continuous life here below. 
his belief, and his struggle to plant what is permanent. His conception, in which he comprehends his own life as an eternal life, is the bond which unites first his own nation and then, through his nation, the whole human race, in a most intimate fashion with himself, and brings all their needs within his widened sympathy until the end of time. This is his love for his people, respecting, trusting, and rejoicing in it, and feeling honored by descent from it. The divine has appeared in it, and that which is original has deemed this people worthy to be made its vesture and its means of directly influencing the world. For this reason, there will be further manifestations of the divine in it. Hence, the noble-minded man will be active and effective, and will sacrifice himself for his people. Life, merely as such, the mere continuance of changing existence, has in any case never had any value for him. He has wished for it only as the source of what is permanent. But this permanence is promised to him only by the continuance and independent existence of his nation. In order to save his nation, he must be ready even to die, that it may live, and that he may live in it, the only life for which he has ever wished. So it is. Love that is truly love, and not a mere transitory lust, never clings to what is transient. Only in the eternal does it awaken and become kindled, and there alone does it rest. Man is not able to love even himself unless he conceives himself as eternal. Apart from that, he cannot even respect, much less approve of, himself. Still less can he love anything outside himself without taking it up into the eternity of his faith and of his soul and binding it thereto. He who does not first regard himself as eternal has in him no love of any kind, and moreover cannot love a fatherland, a thing which for him does not exist. He who regards his invisible life as eternal, but not his visible life as similarly eternal, may perhaps have a heaven and therein a fatherland, but here below he has no fatherland, for this too is regarded only in the image of eternity, eternity visible and made sensuous, and for this reason also he is unable to love his fatherland. If none has been handed down to such a man, he is to be pitied. But he to whom a fatherland has been handed down, and in whose soul heaven and earth, visible and invisible, meet and mingle, and thus, and only thus, create a true and enduring heaven, such a man fights to the last drop of his blood to hand on the precious possession, unimpaired, to his posterity. People in fatherland, in this sense, as a support and guarantee of eternity on earth, and as that which can be eternal here below, far transcend the state in the ordinary sense of the word, namely, the social order as comprehended by mere intellectual conception, and is established and maintained under the guidance of this conception. The aim of the state is positive law, internal peace, and a condition of affairs in which everyone may, by diligence, earn his daily bread and satisfy the needs of his material existence, so long as God permits him to live. All this is only a means, a condition, and a framework for what love of fatherland really wants, namely, that the eternal and the divine may blossom in the world 
and never cease to become more and more pure, perfect, and excellent. That is why love of fatherland must itself govern the state and be the supreme, final, and absolute authority. Its first exercise of this authority will be to limit the state's choice of means to secure its immediate object, internal peace. To attain this object, the natural freedom of the individual must, of course, be limited in many ways. If the only consideration and intention in regard to individuals were to secure internal peace, it would be well to limit that liberty as much as possible, to bring all their activities under a uniform rule, and to keep them under unceasing supervision. Even supposing such strictness were unnecessary, it could at any rate do no harm if this were the sole object. It is only the higher view of the human race and of peoples which extends this narrow calculation. Freedom, including freedom in the activities of external life, is the soil in which high culture germinates. A legislation which keeps the higher culture in view will allow to freedom as wide a field as possible, even at the risk of securing a smaller degree of uniform peace and quietness, and of making the work of government a little harder and more troublesome. To illustrate this by an example, it has happened that nations have been told to their face that they do not need so much freedom as many other nations do. It may even be that the form in which the opinion is expressed is considerate and mild, if what is really meant is that the particular nation would be quite unable to stand so much freedom, and that nothing but extreme severity could prevent its members from destroying each other. But when the words are taken as meaning what they say, they are true only in the supposition that such a nation is thoroughly incapable of having original life or even the impulse towards it. Such a nation, if a nation could exist in which there were not even a few men of noble mind to make an exception to the general rule, would in fact need no freedom at all, for this is needed only for the higher purposes that transcend the state. It needs only to be tamed and trained, so that the individuals may live peaceably with each other, and that the whole may be made into an efficient instrument for arbitrary purposes in which the nation, as such, has no part. Whether this can be said with truth of any nation at all, we may leave undecided. This much is clear, that an original people needs freedom, and this is the security for its continuance as an original people, and that, as it goes on, it is able to stand an ever-increasing degree of freedom without the slightest danger. This is the first matter in respect of which love of fatherland must govern the state itself. Then, too, it must be love of fatherland that governs the state by placing before it a higher object than the usual one of maintaining internal peace, property, personal freedom, and the life and well-being of all. For this higher object alone, and with no other intention, does the state assemble an armed force. When the question arises of making use of this, when the call comes to stake everything that the state, in the narrow conception of the word, sets before itself as object, namely property, personal freedom, life, and well-being, nay, even the continued existence of the state itself, when the call comes to make an original decision with responsibility to God alone, and without a clear and reasonable idea that what is intended will surely be attained, 
for this is never possible in such matters. Then, and then only, does there live at the helm of the state a truly original and primary life. And at this point, and not before, the true sovereign rights of government enter, like God, to hazard the lower life for the sake of danger. In the maintenance of the traditional constitution, the laws, and civil prosperity, there is absolutely no real true life and no original decision. Conditions and circumstances, and legislators perhaps long since dead, have created these things. Succeeding ages go on faithfully in the paths marked out, and so in fact they have no public life of their own. They merely repeat a life that once existed. In such times, there is no need of any real government. But when this regular course is engendered, and it is a question of making decisions in new and unprecedented cases, then there is need of a life that lives of itself. What spirit is it that in such cases may place itself at the helm, that can make its own decisions with sureness and certainty, untroubled by any hesitation? What spirit has an undisputed right to summon and to order everyone concerned, whether he himself be willing or not, and to compel anyone who resists to risk everything, including his life? Not the spirit of the peaceful citizen's love for the Constitution and the laws, but the devouring flame of a higher patriotism which embraces the nation as the vesture of the eternal, for which the noble-minded man joyfully sacrifices himself, and the ignoble man, who only exists for the sake of the other, must likewise sacrifice himself. It is not that love of the citizen for the Constitution. That love is quite unable to achieve this, so long as it remains on the level of the understanding. Whatever turn events may take, since it pays to govern, they will always have a ruler over them. Suppose the new ruler even wants to introduce slavery. And what is slavery if not the disregard for and the suppression of the characteristic of an original people? But to that way of thinking, such qualities do not exist. Suppose he wants to introduce slavery. Then, since it is profitable to preserve the life of slaves, to maintain their numbers and even their well-being, slavery under him will turn out to be bearable if he is anything of a calculator. Their life and their keep, at any rate, they will always find. Then what is there left that they should fight for? After those two things, it is peace which they value more than anything. But peace will only be disturbed by the continuance of the struggle. They will, therefore, do anything just to put an end to the fighting, and the sooner the better. They will submit, they will yield, and why should they not? All they have ever been concerned about, and all that they ever hoped from life, has been the continuation of the habit of existing under tolerable conditions. The promise of a life here on earth, extending beyond the period of life here on earth, that alone it is which can inspire men even unto death for the fatherland. So it has been hitherto. Wherever there has been true government, wherever bitter struggles have been endured, wherever victory has been won in the face of mighty opposition, there it has been that promise of eternal life which governed and struggled and won the victory. Picture to yourselves, then, the new power which we are presupposing, as well disposed and as benevolent as ever you may wish. 
Make it as good as God himself. Will you be able to impart to it divine understanding as well? Even though it wish in all earnestness the greatest happiness and well-being of everyone, do you suppose that the greatest well-being it is able to conceive will be the same thing as German well-being? In regard to the main point which I have put before you today, I hope I have been thoroughly well understood by you. I hope that several, while they listened to me, thought and felt that I was only expressing in plain words what has always lain in their minds. I hope that the other Germans who will one day read this will have the same feeling. Indeed, several Germans have said practically the same thing before I did. And the unconscious basis of the resistance that has been repeatedly manifested to a purely mechanical constitution and policy of the state has been the view of things which I have presented to you. Now, I challenge all those who are acquainted with the modern literature of foreign countries to show me one of their poets or legislators who, in recent times, has ever betrayed a glimmering of anything similar to the view that regards the human race as eternally progressing, and that refers all its activities in this world solely to this eternal progress. Even in the period of their boldest flights of political creation, was there a single one who demanded more from the state than the abolition of inequalities, the maintenance of peace within their borders and of national reputation without, or, in the extremist case, domestic bliss? If, as we must conclude from all these indications, this is their highest good, they will not attribute to us any higher need or any higher demands on life. Assuming they always display that beneficent disposition towards us and are free from any selfishness or desire to be greater than we are, they will think they have provided splendidly for us if we are given everything that they themselves know to be desirable. But the thing for which alone the nobler men among us wish to live is then blotted out of public life. And as soon as the people, which has always shown itself responsive to the stirrings of the noble mind, and which we were entitled to hope might be elevated in a body to that nobility, is treated as those to whom we are referring want to be treated, it is degraded and dishonored. And by its confluence with a people of a lower species, it is blotted out of the universe. But he in whom those higher demands on life remain alive and powerful, and who has a feeling that their right is divine, feels himself set back, much against his will, into those early days of Christianity when it was said, Resist not evil, but whosoever smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. The latter is well said. For, so long as he sees that thou still has a cloak, he seeks to pick a quarrel with thee, so as to take this from thee also. And only when thou art quite naked wilt thou escape his attention and be left in peace. To such a man the earth becomes a hell and a place of horror, just because of his higher mind, which does him honor. He wishes he had never been born. He wishes that his eyes may be closed to the light of day, and the sooner the better. His days are filled with everlasting sorrow until he descends to the grave, and for those whom he loves he can wish no greater boon than a dull and contented mind, so that with less suffering they may live for an eternal life beyond the grave. These addresses lay before you the sole remaining means, now that the others have been tried in vain, of preventing this annihilation of every nobler impulse that may break out among us in the future, and of preventing this degradation of our whole nation. They propose that you establish deeply and indelibly in the hearts of all, by means of education, 
the true and all-powerful love of fatherland, the conception of our people as an eternal people, and as the security for our own eternity. Thank you for listening to the Culture and Anarchy Podcast. I am proud to announce the upcoming publication of our second edition of The Dial, our periodic literary magazine, which features works by poets in the Liberty tradition. The 2017 issue is available on our website at www.culture-anarchy.com, and our next edition will be out in December. Print copies can be ordered through most online retailers. We will be podcasting selections of poetry from The Dial at the end of each month, so if you would like to contribute poetry and hear your works promulgated throughout the world, please see our submission guidelines at www.culture-anarchy.com. Coming up, we'll be featuring the first installments of The Shadow of All Doubts, a series that features the lesser-known but momentous conflicts between individuals and both state and church establishments throughout the history of Western civilization. Also... We will be ramping up our publication schedule in the months to come to provide content beside our podcast presentations of my new book of philosophy, The God Function, Deus Ex Grammatica, which is now available in most online bookstores. We will be exploring more philosophy, history, and economics through literature of the great tradition. These shorter pieces will supplement our upcoming series, The Heights, Historical Sketches from the World's Gold Confiscation, and Neoconservatism, a Requiem. Thanks again for your support over the past year as the show has grown. And keep the social media mentions going to help spread the word about the best that has been thought and said. So please come see us at www.culture-anarchy.com. While Fichte envisioned a glorious national revolution of ideals, a much grislier reality was sculpting the future of Spain with blood-red clay. Fichte declared that a people must be prepared to die, such that a nation could live. But Child Harold, in viewing the heaps of dead, had trouble seeing how a nation could live 
when his best and brightest lights were so cruelly extinguished in the endless orgy of murder, unrestrained, and rapine. In the little space in which peace broke forth upon the landscape, the new hero, warrior, general, admirable, or republic, would deigneth to delay only a moment before tearing anew through the populace. And in defeat, in triumph, and desolation, the Spanish maid, the lover, the wife, the mother, peopled the land with a new generation, who would eventually proffer sweet blood to the bloodthirsty giant on his apocalyptic mountain, blood tresses waving in the tempest winds. But even beyond woman's role in propagating the future race of tyrant fodder, even she could take up the short knife, the anlace, and stalk through the streets to repel the French infantry. On the 6th of June, the year 1808, Juana Galan led the women of Valdepeñas against Napoleon's cavalry to assist the men who resisted the French army's passage through the village. She, with a baton and a cast-iron stewpot, smashed in the heads of the French soldiers while women poured hot water and boiling oil upon the road to halt the cavalry's passage. But in Byron's vision of the Spanish maid, we see the maid upon the battlefield, checking the retreat of the menfolk, charging into battle, fierce and fair and full of metal. There is nothing romantic in Byron's snapshot of Spain. There is no ebb and flow of war. There is desperation. There is only flow with nary an ebb to mark a change in human fortunes. Nationalist uprising, internationalist expansion, it mattered not who won the day, for the years would period nothing but ceaseless slaughter and death. Stanzas 52 through 56. 52. Portend the deeds to come, but he who's not has tumbled feebler despots from their sway. A moment pauseth ere he lifts the rod, a little moment deigneth to delay. Soon will his legions sweep through these their way. The West must own the scourger of the world. Ah, Spain, how sad will be thy reckoning day when soars gulls vulture with his wings unfurled, and thou shalt view thy sons in crowds to Hades hurled. 53. And must they fall, the young, the proud, the brave, to swell one bloated chief's unwholesome reign? No step between submission and the grave? The rise of rapine and the fall of Spain? And doth the power that man adores ordain their doom, nor heed the suppliant's appeal? Is all that desperate valor acts in vain? And counsel sage and patriotic zeal, the veteran's skill, use fire and manhood's heart of steel. 54. As if for this the Spanish maid, aroused, hangs on the willow her unstrung guitar. And all unsexed, the anlace hath espoused, sung the loud song, and dared the deed of war. And she, whom once the semblance of a scar appalled, an owlet's larum, chilled with dread, now views the column-scattering bayonet jar, the falchion flash, and o'er the yet warm dead stalks with Minerva's step where Mars might quake to tread. 
55. Ye who shall marvel when you hear her tale, oh, had you known her in her softer hour, marked her black eye that mocks her coal-black veil, heard her light, lively tones in ladies' bower, seen her long locks that foil the painter's power, her fairy form, with more than female grace, scarce would you deem that Saragossa's tower beheld her smile in danger's gorgon face, thin the closed ranks, and lead in glory's fearful chase. 56. Her lover sinks, she sheds no ill-timed tear. Her chief is slain, she fills his fatal post. Her fellows flee, she checks her base career. The foe retires, she heads the sallying host. Who can appease like her a lover's ghost? Who can avenge so well a leader's fall? What maid retrieve when man's flushed hope is lost? Who hangs so fiercely on the flying gall, foiled by a woman's hand before a battered wall? Selections from the 14th Address Conclusion Perhaps someone may come forward from among you and ask me, What gives you alone of all German men and writers the special task, the vocation, and the right to assemble us and to press your views upon us? Would not each one of the thousands of Germany's men of letters have just as much right to do it as you? Not one of them does it, but you alone thrust yourself forward. I answer that, of course, everyone would have the same right as I have, that I am doing it solely because not one of them has done it before me, and that I would be silent if another had already done it. This was the first step to the goal of a thorough reformation. Someone or other had to take it. I was the first one to see it vividly. Therefore, it fell to me to take the first step. After this, some other step will be second. All have now the same right to take this step. But once again, it will in fact be one man, and one man only, who does take it. There must always be one who is first. Then let him be first who can. What is demanded of you is not much. You are only bidden to undertake to pull yourselves together for a short time, and to think over that which lies immediately and openly before your eyes. On that alone, you are to form a definite opinion, to remain true to it and utter and express it in your own immediate surroundings. It is an assumption, it is our sure conviction, that the result of this thinking will prove to be the same with all of you, and that, if only you really think and do not go on in the old heedlessness, you will think alike. That, if only you put on the spirit and do not remain on the level of mere vegetable existence, unity and concord of spirit will come of itself. But once that has come about, Everything else that we need will be added to us without our seeking. Now, 
This effort of thought is in fact demanded of each one of you, who is still capable of thinking for himself about a thing that lies plainly before his eyes. You have time for it. There is no question of the present moment bewildering you or taking you by surprise. The documents recording the negotiations conducted with you still lie before your eyes. Do not lay them aside until you have made up your minds. Do not, oh, do not allow yourselves to relax by trusting in others or in anything whatever that lies outside of yourselves, nor yet by the foolish wisdom of the time, which holds that the ages make themselves without any human aid by means of some unknown force. These addresses have not grown weary of impressing upon you that nothing whatever can help you except yourselves, and they find it necessary to repeat it up to the last moment. It may be said that rain and dew and fruitful or unfruitful seasons are made by a force unknown to us and not in our power. But all human relationships, the whole special province of man, are made only by men themselves and by absolutely no power outside them. Only when they are all equally blind and ignorant do they fall victims to this hidden power. But it rests with them not to be blind and ignorant. It is true that the degree of evil, be it greater or less, which will befall us, may depend partly on that unknown power, but it will depend very specially on the understanding and goodwill of those to whom we are subjected. But whether it will ever go well with us again depends entirely on ourselves, and it is certain that no well-being whatever will come to us again unless we procure it for ourselves, and especially unless each one of us, in his own way, acts and works as if he were alone, and as if upon him alone depended the salvation of generations to come. This is what you have to do. These addresses solemnly appeal to you to do it without delay. To you, young men, they solemnly appeal. I, who have long ceased to belong to your ranks, am of the opinion which I have expressed in these addresses, that you are even more capable than others of any thought that lies outside of the common round, and more susceptible to all that is good and vigorous, because your age lies nearer to the yields of childlike innocence and of nature. Quite otherwise, is this trait in you regarded by the majority of the older world. They accuse you of arrogance, of hasty and presumptuous judgment exceeding your powers, of always thinking yourselves in the right, of a mania for innovation, yet they only smile good-humoredly at these failings of yours. All this, they think, is founded solely on your lack of knowledge of the world, that is to say, of the general state of human corruption, for they have no eyes for anything else in the world. You have courage now, they think, only because you hope to find helpers of like mind, and do not know the grim and stiff-necked resistance which will be offered to your plans for the better. Just wait a little while, they say. When once the youthful fire of your imagination has died away, when you have come to learn the general state of selfishness, slothfulness, and dislike for work, when you yourselves have once properly tasted the sweetness of going on in an accustomed groove, then the desire and the will to be better and cleverer than all the rest will depart from you. This good hope, which they have of you, is not based on thin air. They have found it confirmed in their own person. They must confess that in the days of their foolish youth they dreamed of improving the world, just as you do now. Nevertheless, as they grew more mature, 
they became as tame and peaceful as you see them at present. I believe them. I have myself, even in my own not very long experience, seen young men who at first aroused their hopes, nonetheless at a later stage fully come up to the well-meaning expectations of this age of maturity. Do this no longer, young men, for if you do, how can a better generation ever begin? The glow of youth will, it is true, fall from you, and the flame of your imaginative power will cease to find nourishment in itself. But seize this flame and concentrate it by clear thinking. Make the art of such thinking your own, and you will have added unto you the finest equipment of man, which is character. In and by that clear thinking, maintain the source of the eternal bloom of youth. However much your body may grow old or your knees tremble, your mind will recreate itself in ever-renewed freshness, and your character will stand fast and upright. Embrace at once the opportunity that here presents itself to you. Think clearly over the subject that is proffered to you for reflection. The clearness that has dawned for you on this one point will gradually spread itself over all the others too. These addresses appeal solemnly to you, old men. You have just heard what people think of you. They say it to your face, and I, the speaker, frankly add thereto for myself that, with regard to the great majority among you, Apart from the exceptions, which are undoubtedly not rare, and which are all the more worthy of honor, what people say is entirely justified. Go through the history of the last two or three decades. Everyone except you yourselves is agreed, and even among yourselves, each one is agreed except as regards the special branch with which he himself is concerned, that always apart from the exceptions, and with reference only to the majority, in every branch, in science as well as in the affairs of life, more inefficiency and selfishness was found among the older men than anywhere else. The whole contemporary world looked on and saw how every man that wished for a better and more perfect state of things had to fight, not only against his own lack of clearness and his other environment, his greatest fight was against you. The world saw that you had firmly resolved that nothing must come to the front which you had not known about or done that you regarded every stirring of thought as an insult to your intelligence, and that you left no power unused by which you might become the victors in this fight against the better, as indeed you were generally the victors. Thus, you were the force which held up all the improvements which kindly nature offered to us from her ever-youthful lap, until you were gathered to the dust. Dust that you were already, and the younger generation in the war with you had become like you, and took over your old way of administration. You only need to act now as you have hitherto acted in regard to all proposals for improvement. You only need to put higher than the common wheel your vanity in regarding it as a point of honor that there shall be nothing under heaven that you have not already discovered. Then, by this last fight, you will be spared any further fighting. No improvement will take place, but deterioration will follow on deterioration, so that you will still have many an occasion to rejoice. I do not want you to think that I despise old age as such, or run it down. If only the source of original life and of its continued movement has by means of freedom been taken up into life, clearness grows, and power with it, so long as life lasts. Such a life becomes better as it is lived, the clay of its earthly origin falling away more and more. It ennobles itself, and reaches upwards towards eternal life, 
and blossoms out to meet it. In such a life, experience does not reconcile itself to evil, but only makes clearer the means and brings more skill in the art of fighting evil triumphantly. For the deterioration due to increasing age, the times we live in are solely to blame. Such deterioration must be the result wherever society is very corrupt. It is not nature that corrupts us. Nature creates us in innocence. Society corrupts us. He who once surrenders himself to its influence must in the nature of things become worse and worse the longer he is exposed to its influence. It would be worthwhile to examine from this point of view the history of other ages that have been very corrupt, and to see, for example, whether under the government of the Roman emperors what was bad did not become worse and worse with increasing age. All ages, all wise and good men who have ever breathed upon this earth, all their thoughts and intuitions of something loftier mingle with these voices and surround you, and lift up imploring hands to you. Even if one may say so, providence and the divine plan in creating a race of man, a plan which exists only to be thought out by men and to be brought by men into the actual world, the divine plan, I say, solemnly appeals to you to save its honor and its existence. Whether those were right who believed that mankind must always grow better, and that thoughts of a true order and worth of man were no idle dreams, but the prophecy and pledge of the real world that is to be, whether they are to be proved right, or those who continue to slumber in an animal and vegetable existence and mock at every flight into higher worlds, to give a final and decisive judgment on this point is a work for you. The old world, with its glory and its greatness, as well as its defects, has fallen by its own unworthiness and by the violence of your fathers. If there is truth in what has been expounded in these addresses, then are you, of all modern peoples, the one in whom the seed of human perfection most unmistakably lies, and to whom the lead in its development is committed. If you perish in this, your essential nature, then there perishes together with you every hope of the whole human race for salvation from the depths of his miseries. Do not console yourselves with an opinion based on thin air, and depending on the mere recurrence of cases that have already happened. Do not hope that when old civilization has fallen, a new one will arise once more out of a semi-barbarous nation on the ruins of the first. In ancient times there was such a people in existence, equipped with every requirement for such a destiny, and quite well known to the civilized people who have left us their description of it. And they themselves, if they had been able to imagine their own downfall, would have been able to discover in this people the means of reconstruction. To us also, the whole surface of the globe is quite well known, and all the peoples that dwell thereon. But do we know a people akin to the ancestral stock of the modern world, of whom we may have the same expectation? I think that everyone who does not merely base his hopes and beliefs on idle dreaming, but investigates thoroughly and thinks, will be bound to answer this question with a NO. There is, therefore, no way out. If you go under, all humanity goes under with you, without hope of any future restoration. This it was, gentlemen, which at the end of these addresses I wanted and was bound to impress upon you, who to me are the representatives of the nation, and through you, upon the whole nation. 
wished to believe that a regional language would speak through its peoples in order to give voice to the universal grammar that undergirds subjective expression. But if Child Harold could hear anything like the universal language of humankind on the shores of Portugal and Spain, it was only voiced in a deathly rattle. Death speaketh universally to man, of man, and it speaketh simply, be he friend or foe, French, English, German, or Spanish. Nothing, Child Harold believed, could ever unseat that fiery war giant on his mountaintop, except the feeling of horror that future generations might share as their collective inheritance when viewing the Legion of the Dead spread upon the silent lawns of Albuera. Then, and only then, as the dogs picked through the corpses of the unburied dead, might the future generations turn aback from those grisly fields where their fathers died, shrinking out of fear of what their fathers may have seen with their last living gazes, where friend and foeman lay mingled without distinction. Let Fichte dream what he may about the eternal character of a nation. Death is the great leveler, and the war god cares nothing for race, tribe, or nation. All is sweet to his tongue, and all are equally flavored to sate his gluttonous appetite. Canto 1, stanzas 86 through 93. 86. Such be the sons of Spain, and strange her fate. They fight for freedom who were never free. A kingless people for a nerveless state. Her vassals combat when their chieftains flee. True to the various slaves of treachery, fond of a land which gave them naught but life, pride points the path that leads to liberty, back to the struggle, baffled in the strife. War, war is still the cry. War, even to the knife. 87. Ye who would more of Spain and Spaniards know, Go, read whate'er is writ of bloodiest strife. Whate'er keen vengeance urged on foreign folk and act Is acting there against man's life. From flashing scimitar to secret knife, War moldeth there each weapon to his need. So may he guard the sister and the wife, So may he make each cursed oppressor bleed, So may such foes deserve the remorseless deed. 88. Flows there a tear of pity for the dead? Look o'er the ravage of the reeking plain. Look on the hands with female slaughter red. Then to the dogs resign the unburied slain, Then to the vulture let each course remain. Albeit, unworthy of the prey-bird's maw, Let their bleached bones and blood's unbleaching stain Long mark the battlefield with hideous awe. Thus only may our sons conceive the scenes we saw. 99. Nor yet, alas, the dreadful work is done. Fresh legion poured adown the Pyrenees. It deepens still. The work is scarce begun. Nor mortal eye the distant end foresees. Fallen nations gaze on Spain. 
If freed, she frees more than her fell Pizarro's once enchained. Strange retribution. Now Columbia's ease repairs the wrongs that Quilto's son sustained, while o'er the parent clime prowls murder unrestrained. 90. Not all the blood at Talavera's shed, nor all the marvels of Barroza's fight. Not Albuera lavish of the dead, have won for Spain her well-asserted right. When shall her olive branch be free from blight? When shall she breathe her from the blushing toil? How many a doubtful day shall sink in night, ere the frank robber turn him from his spoil, and freedom's stranger tree grow native of the soil? 91. And thou, my friend, since unavailing woe bursts from my heart and mingles with the strain, had the sword laid thee with the mighty low, pride might forbid e'en friendship to complain. But thus on laurel to descend in vain by all forgotten, save the lonely breast, and mix on bleeding with the boasted slain, while glory crowns so many a meaner crest. What hadst thou done to sink so peacefully to rest? 92. Oh, known the earliest and esteemed the most, dear to a heart where naught was left so dear. Though to my hopeless days forever lost in dreams deny me not to see thee there. And morn, in secret, shall renew the tear of consciousness awaking to her woes, and fancy hover o'er the bloodless bier till my frail frame return to whence it rose, and mourned, and mourner lie united in repose. 93. Here is one fit of Harold's pilgrimage. Ye who of him may further seek to know, shall find some tidings in a future page if he that rhymeth now may scribble mo. Is this too much? Stern critic, say not so. Patience, and ye shall hear what he beheld in other lands where he was doomed to go. Lands that contained the monuments of old, ere Greece and Grecian arts by barbarous hands were quelled. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the best that has been thought and said. If we cannot do this one way, we will do it another. But Nothing. do it, we will. It's like all forms of government. Somebody was rude. And I don't like the word rule. Hey! Ah, I am going library. to establish a government market for gold in the United ah, States. In this country, rules are not imposed. They are the wish of all free citizens. Travel around a bit, then you'll Take see how free they are. Hey! Now let me say something. Let me tell you how wrong you are. In the first 
Culture and Anarchy Podcast. We have a long way to go. Have you finished? Monopoly is the menace of free enterprise. I am not satisfied because you'd be in jail. We are on the way. If civilization is to survive, we must come back power until the dignity and peace of man are restored. As always, featuring the beats of the Passion Hi-Fi, their tracks, Cold Heat, I Close My Eyes, and Untouchable. Follow them on SoundCloud and Twitter and leave them a great rating. Also, featuring audio from King of New York, a Charlie Chaplin film, provided with the express permission of Roy Export SAS, who holds the copyright there too. Featuring music by Enrique Granados, 12 Spanish Dances, Arabesca, guitar arrangement by William Riley, courtesy of newsopen.org. Also featuring music by Pietro Locatelli, Cello Sonata in D, the first movement played by Elisaveta Sushchenko. This recording is protected by a Creative Commons License 3.0, courtesy of newsopen.org.